Welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. Today, we're tackling technology, your data privacy, and what you need to know as you navigate an ever-changing landscape. Our guest today is the amazing Nula O'Connor. Nula is a leader and expert in this field. She was the first chief privacy officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She was also one of the first executive level officials hired when that department first opened in the months just following 9-11. Nula came to that position with a great deal of experience and expertise, having held chief privacy roles at the Department of Commerce, at GE, and at Amazon, where she also had responsible for what's called customer trust, a big lofty title, if ever there was one. Today, she's the CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. She's also the mom of three. She's someone who successfully combines and embraces the roles of both mom and executive, both at work and at home, it's fair to say. It's also fair to say she didn't earn her Twitter handle at Privacy Mama by accident. Nula, welcome. So excited to be here, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. We're delighted to have you. So we have lots and lots that we could talk about today, but let's start with the Center for Democracy and Technology, or CDT, we'll say. What is CDT, Nula? We are a little think tank and advocacy organization focused on the rights of the individual in the digital world. So we are here thinking about and talking about your privacy, your freedom of expression, your intrusion by government into your daily lives as you navigate the internet, and trying to create healthy boundaries between individuals and government and individuals and companies in a way that embraces the best of technology. I think technology powers and drives our daily lives, and I think technology actually is especially empowering to women. I was just saying to someone this morning, I could not have this job and be a mom of three if I didn't have the internet and Amazon and my cell phone and the ability to be connected to my kids and to my office in the times and the ways that I want. And that's an important thing we should talk about is control. Mm -hmm. But I think technology is a great enabler of equality for all people when used correctly. That's great. Okay, I want to dig into this big topic of privacy. That's something you all here at CDT spend a lot of time on. You have have a very established career on privacy. What should the average person how should the average person be thinking about their privacy? I think of data as part of you. So we have lots of ways to think about data in different parts of the world and different legal constructs that data is property or data is something you transact with companies or governments. But I think it's simply like the breadcrumbs you leave on the trail behind you that show kind of who you are and where you've been. And that is not a bad thing. It is a great thing to be known by your friends and to connect with your friends and family on Facebook or to do your shopping on Amazon or to engage and do search on Google. But what we want to know is how that data is being used and what decisions perhaps are being made about us in the future based on the data that we share. So what I think people should know, first of all, is trust the companies that you're doing business with. So that means being a little bit 
careful about the brand names that you're engaging with. I happen to know very well what the Amazon privacy policies are since I worked there for several years. I actually have incredible trust in that brand and in how they do business. I know that they are very protective of the data that you share, partly because they want to sell you more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I think Jeff Bezos knows that there's almost nothing he can't figure out a way to sell you based on what he knows about you. But that's okay. That's kind of a legitimate business interest. With a smaller brand name or, or with a company you might be less familiar with, I think you should ask the hard questions about what does the privacy policy say? What are they going to do with your data? How long are they going to keep it? And is it kept secure? That's a really important question for not just internet companies, but really for all companies. One of the biggest data breaches we've seen in this country was at Target. Now, we all love Target, right? Target, you know, we do a lot of our shopping there, and that's terrific. That data breach was, you know, tremendously damaging to the company and to customer trust in that company. And it happened not through the internet, but through a, a hacking attack in their HVAC system, their heating and, and, and air conditioning system that was electronically linked to other financial systems with credit cards and and um, cashier that's transactions. That's internet of things. And that's the challenge, right? As companies are moving forward, as your house is moving forward, you want to be really mindful of the quality of the devices that are you're bringing into your home. Think of them like, mm, I want to use a, a, a respectful word, they are really important agents of your family and they will have information about your family that could be used again to provide services and 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 good things but it could also be used against you uh, if something goes wrong think about your energy company knowing all the, the devices you have in your home and deciding someday that you're using too much energy we're just going to cut it off right this isn't a far-fetched example but things like that are being considered and kind of you know rationing and and when California has different uh, you know environmental issues they cut off water and they cut off you know different kinds of power. Um, so be mindful of the details that you are sharing with, again, legitimate and and perhaps less well-known companies as well. Mm-hmm. So you're touching on something that I think is oftentimes lost in the debate around privacy. Um, you can't pick up a newspaper or turn on the television or the radio without some conversation about technology and privacy and protecting yourself. But this notion of personal responsibility, you've touched on a number of themes in terms of understanding how these devices work and how they're connected together. What other advice do you have for people in terms of this notion of personal responsibility? Where do you draw the line? Target, it's hard to be personally responsible, right? right? That's not what you're talking about with a hacking scenario. But some of the other stuff we've seen recently it's kind of that's sort of lost in the debate, right? And I think there's responsibility on all sides. I think individuals, consumers need to be mindful of the devices they're buying. I think companies definitely have a responsibility to explain what they're doing with their devices and the data they're collecting. And I think there may be a role for government, both in how they use data, but also in helping create those healthy boundaries in the commercial space. Um, but I think being an educated consumer in the digital age means asking questions about the technology that you're bringing into your home, and not just willy-nilly buying the, the latest device, which I certainly am guilty of, but I do sit and read some of the, the, the disclosures. And what we're doing is working with not only individuals, but companies to say, how can you deliver those explanations and how can you help educate customers a little bit better? I'm, again, tremendously proud and a little bit biased about the Amazon products that deliver their disclosures verbally. So when you turn on your Amazon Echo, it talks to you and it tells you what it's going to be doing. When you turn on your Amazon Fire TV, it talks to you, it has a little kind of cartoon guy that shows up and says this is who we are and this is what we're doing there are lots of ways to help educate and explain that the companies are doing and trying and experimenting with and we really applaud that and we want to encourage that and yes i think people shouldn't be 
afraid of the technology, but nor should they be bamboozled by it and think it's going to solve all sorts of ills. It's only as good as the choices we all make as individuals and as companies. It sounds like you are seeing a trend in terms of companies embracing, presenting those privacy policies in a different way so that unlike your, you know, the privacy statement that you get have historically gotten in your credit card bill, for example, um, this is different, right? right? This is presenting it in a way that maybe consumers will actually internalize it and understand exactly. it and make it's, it accessible. It's part of the offering of the device, right? It's part of helping people. And I think it will actually help sales. Like I'm, I'm always saying this is not, privacy is not antithetical to good product delivery and good salesmanship and that sort of thing. It has to be embedded in the relationship between the company and the individual. I'm, I am excited about delivering privacy notices and explanations about how the technology works in different ways. I'm a little critical of some of my friends and my favorite cell phone provider, I won't say who that is, um, <laughs> who deliver their privacy policy. And it's something like 36 or 47 screens long. And I, I said, even I, who do this for a living, would not read that, right? That's just <laughs> really, really a burden it's on the individual. Much. Exactly. So, But I think this is exciting. And I think if we focus the attention of engineers, and we have a big project around digital decisions and kind of ethical design. And I think it's a little bit educating the engineers both in the college and graduate school level, but also in the companies themselves to think about what is your ethical and social responsibility in the digital age? Just like when I was at GE, we had to clean up the Hudson River because the company a hundred years before had polluted the river. So companies in the digital age have to think about what is their environmental impact? What is the impact they're having on society? And how do they take a responsible stewardship? The middle name of the middle word in our name is democracy, right? And so there's a huge debate about how social media platforms and digital companies are affecting the democracy. What are the choices that engineers and computer scientists are making in how they program algorithms and how they design devices? Are we upholding the fundamental principles of kind of truth and the First Amendment and the and the Constitution? You know, or are we having what I would say are unintended or inadvertent effects? You know, what is our responsibility as individuals and institutions? I think we're taking democracy for a bit of a ride this year and in questioning the fundamental principles and underpinnings of the the pillars and the institutions of our democracy and how it runs. I hope we come out the other end of this stronger and better for having examined them. And I think folks in the technology industry and individuals have to each think about their personal responsibility, whether it's at work or at home, and how they further that dialogue and that discourse. There is, at times, a real lack of understanding about how some basic tools work. I think cookies uh, or otherwise known as online behavioral advertising can create all sorts of confusion and can really creep people out sometimes. These are, of course, we're talking about the ads that follow you from site to site. What should consumers know about this and should they be concerned about this practice? I have to confess, I am far less concerned about advertising than many people in the consumer advocacy or kind of privacy space. And here's why. There has always been advertising. And advertisers and commercial entities, companies, have always been trying to get you to buy more stuff. I don't know if you remember the movie The Natural, but how there was a salesman, a shop that always stocked blue hats for this one gentleman because they knew he'd walk by and his wife loved blue hats. And when the gentleman died, he found they found something like 30 blue hats for his wife that he because he picked one up, you know, once a week for a long, long time. Um, companies have always been trying to target and to know their customer better 
this the corner store in the 1800s and you know your little wild west town I don't have a problem with people trying to sell you stuff as long as they're being honest about what they're trying to do and, and being transparent. Um, and advertising, I, gosh, I sound like I'm kind of a, you know, rah-rah for the advertising industry. They'd be surprised to hear this, I'm sure, coming <laughs> from me, actually, or this institution. But advertising also fuels free access to websites and gives the individual blogger or voice or human being the ability to access information and to make their voice heard on the internet, which is a fundamental, I think, value that certainly we at CDT adhere to, which is the internet is a net positive force for good in society when used responsibly and appropriately um, to further dialogue, to further communication, to further collaboration. What you start to worry about is when there is inequity, for example, in the advertising or even more importantly, the content that is delivered to human beings. We've done some research and we've seen some research in, in this space that, for example, ads for certain types of jobs might be delivered more towards men than women, right? This would create inherent inequity that the women, the targets would not even know the job was available. So C-suite jobs being targeted more towards men based not even knowing that they were men, but rather that they surfed into a job site from Sports Illustrated versus Glamour Magazine, right? That was perhaps, I would hope, unintended bias, right? We also see that, for example, based on race when it's inferred from zip code or region of the country or that sort of thing. We want to ferret out what, again, we hope is unintended or implicit bias from the algorithm. But I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, hand wave and say all advertising is bad. I think it is the the outcomes and making sure that the inputs are equitable and fair and and, and you know further democratic values and ideals. Um, but I don't want to dismiss advertising because it does fuel a number of smaller and larger websites that provide very good services to individuals. Let's talk a bit more. You touched on this notion of fairness in algorithms, and of course it, it plays out in advertising, but it plays out in other ways as well. Can you dig a little bit deeper um, in terms of, of why that's a concern and what CDT is doing as it relates to that? So there's this old book called The, the, the Closing of the American Mind, and I worry that if we narrowly focus and tailor our content online more and more to you're this color or you're this gender or you're this area of the country or you're this educational you know status and so forth we assume you're going to be interested in this content that's narrowing people's worldview as opposed to opening and my vision for the internet cdt's vision for the internet is that it is a great enabler of equality and enabler of knowledge right and that you'll know more about the world from being online versus not being online the concern is that as we engage in more and more targeted, not just advertising, but content, people's worldviews will close kind of in on them. And you actually see this in the research coming out of MIT um, on Twitter and on other uh, platforms after this election. What's concerning, and it may both be validating what's already happening in society, or it may be exacerbating what's mm. already happening in society. And that's the thing we don't know. We cannot blame any one platform or even just the internet for the outcome of a, an election, whether you feel good or bad about it. It might be not so good for you next time. That's what I also tell my friends in Congress. You know, you may feel on top this time, but but these tools will be used against you in the future. So let's get some transparency around them. But what the research is showing is that the bubbles of red and blue are separating, right? The bubbles of Republican, both media and and end users, and uh, liberal or Democrat media and end users 
are crossing over to each other less and less. And that means the dialogue, the connective tissue in our society is fraying in the middle. And that's, I think, the exact opposite of what we want to see. We want to foster understanding. We want to foster communication. We want to foster at least an acknowledgement that the other side might have some inherent value as human beings, Mm -hmm. even if we profoundly disagree with them on policy. And that worries me. And so I guess in the search for the holy grail of the right message to the right user at the right time, which works, I think, when you're looking for a red sweater, you know, (laughs) it may not be the right algorithm when looking for political or historical or social content to increase our understanding of the world and our place in society. So you're you're talking about this digital divide, which is Mm -hmm. very concerning. Um, exacerbating that, not only the socioeconomic considerations, but also um, those may be regional considerations because of lack of connectivity in certain parts of this country, not to mention certain parts of the world, but in the United States. We still have places where internet connectivity is something that is very, very different from what you have here in Washington, D.C. So talk a little bit about that aspect of this challenge as well. Thank you so much for pivoting to what I think is the real digital divide in this country, which is access or lack of access, the haves and the have-nots of the internet age. Your increasing ability to access high-speed internet to serve your home or school or car or religious institution will put you in a different social and economic category in the future. Kids are being asked to do their homework online. If you don't have internet connectivity or a computer at your house, you're going to be left behind as a, as a student. So I totally agree. And we in the advocacy community, I think, are a little bit guilty of always looking to the other parts of the world. This is a problem we have right here in the United States, and we really need to think about it. My vision is still, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority for the internet, <laughs> right? That, that we will take on a big job and infrastructure push in a public-private partnership way, right? Not putting this all on the companies either that they should be on the hook for building all of this, but that the government recognizes not that you know internet access necessarily to a particular platform or company is a, is a right, but that as we increasingly live our our lives in the digital world, that some level of basic access is a necessity to engage in both social and economic and also political dialogue in this country. So I completely agree with you. I think we need to look hard at the choices we're making as companies, but more importantly as a society and as a country, and in, in ensuring that we are competitive. We're competitive among ourselves and in the world economy as well. Do you see progress being made on that front? Because clearly you've mentioned a number of different players that need to be at the table. You need to have government there in some some uh, form or fashion. And obviously, from the standpoint of members of Congress and senators, you've got those who have it and those who don't, right? Then you've got the, the companies, right? That it's in their interest to make sure that connectivity is, you know, so how, how do you manage all of those different competing interests and players? Well, I think most people working in this space, whether they're coming it from the company or the government standpoint, realize that this is a basic equity issue, right? And so whether we are up in the clouds of, you know, algorithmic decision-making and dis- disparate impact, or we are down at the very basic level of, does everybody have have the ability to get online in some basic way in their home or in their community. I think we all realize that without internet connectivity, all of these other policy issues are really esoteric, right? And I actually have great hope. I think 
I may be short-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic that um, <laughs> our members of Congress will kind of rally around this. But Ajit Pai and the current members of the FCC, again, while CDT has historically had differing positions on a number of issues, Ajit has said very clearly that access is a high-level priority for the uh, administration, and that is good news, I think. It's not always in the best interest of the company. It, it costs more money to build infrastructure in remote areas that serve fewer people. So it's not going to be the most economically viable choice they would make. And so I think they would need to have some support from, from Congress and from the, the administration and some public-private partnerships and incentives. So talking a little bit more about the role of government, um, we saw in some recent high-profile data privacy hearings, both the Senate and the House, and they reveal one thing in particular. You can sort of be pro or con the other <laughs> the merits of, of all of that, and I might be a little biased as it relates to this. Um, but, but one thing that was readily apparent, and that was a lack of overall understanding on the part, seemingly, on the part of the individual members and senators about basics in the tech industry, how the business models work, how these platforms make money. That was frankly surprising to me. It's not surprising that government lags behind industry. That's historically right. always been the case. But this is a big part of the economy. These are big consequential issues that, that the country's grappling with. Nuala, how do you work to close that divide? Um, because I think that was fairly stunning to people watching. Laura, I could not agree more. I think that was the biggest takeaway from this latest round of hearings, and I was simply sad. I took no joy, and I tweeted nothing sarcastic about any of the players. I, that that was an embarrassment to the kind of wheels of government. And I also think making policy by castigating a CEO in a hearing is not always the best way to find light and you know to shed light on an issue either. But I was simply really sad because this is an incredibly important issue, how the digital economy thrives in this country and how people are treated with dignity in that economy is incredibly important. It's fundamental to who we are as Americans and how we treat each other. Um, and I would have expected better, I'm going to be really honest. And I know there are great, great, great staff people working on the House and the Senate, and I know they worked very hard on questions. But it was clear that there was not a facility simply with the technology itself or how it is used on any one particular platform. And I think without that knowledge, good law and good regulation cannot be made. In fact, this is how I ended up on Facebook as one of the earliest users when I was way back at GE doing data privacy and data security. And the company was trying to figure out a policy on whether or not we would let our employees use Facebook. I mean, it's, it's such a simple question now. And in fact, we had a similar questions about the cloud and would we ever store data in there? I mean, these are, this is the early days of the internet, so I'm not mocking them. We were making very prescient and good decisions about the company and our data assets. But really the question was, are people going to waste time on Facebook? And my answer was, of course, if they're going to waste time at work, they're going to figure out a way to do it, whether they're online or, you know, or just shooting the breeze at the water cooler. But one of my engineers said to me, you can't make policy about this until you are actually using it. And I think that's a fair, fair point. I mean, you can understand the principles of it, but I got online and now I'm a super user, right? I'm on every day. We're friends on Facebook, you know that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a terrific connectivity tool for people in their da busy, busy daily lives. But I was, I was disappointed and surprised actually by the level of dialogue. And I think um, these are hard questions and they're important questions and they are not limited to any one company. These are questions about how much control an individual should ex continue to exert about their own data and how much transparency they should have 
have into a company's operations within reason about where their data is going and the uses to which it is put. And again, that's why I don't mean to be dismissive of the advertising questions. I think they're important and they're serious and they deserve respect. But the questions about what content I'm seeing and did, does it affect people's perception of their democracy? That's a much heavier question and a, and a very important one. Um, and I think, again, companies and individuals together have responsibility to, to make those boundaries and make good choices about where, where the data flows. Mm-hmm. In the interest of disclosure, because we have mm-hmm. talked just a bit about Facebook, my husband does work for Facebook as an executive. And so it's important that listeners know that. Uh, I think we can have an objective conversation, notwithstanding that fact that it is important but a well to disclose informed that. One, which uh, is hopefully, good. Absolutely. hopefully, yes, absolutely. yes, that's the and, hope. And in, the, in that vein, I should disclose Facebook is a supporter of CDT, as are almost all of the major technology and telecom platforms. They do not determine our policy agenda, but they are they have a seat at the table, which I think is the space that the Center for Democracy and Technology holds. We invite anyone to the table who wants to help make reasonable, rational, well-formed policy. And we meet with governments, we meet with individuals, we meet with companies, um, and we are funded by individuals. So please check out cdt.org because <laughs> we do great, great work protecting your civil liberties um, and foundations and companies alike. So I'm, I'm proud of the, our centrist position as a convener. This, On a meta level, the center is a lonely place these days in Washington, right? So it is a slightly <laughs> left of center, I guess, historically. I worked for a Republican administration. I think we our strength is that that we are respectful and thoughtful to anyone who wants to join in the dialogue. And inclusive of different points of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really important point. So let's talk a bit about your background as it relates to um, law enforcement, surveillance, national security, some of these other big, big themes that the government and others are, are grappling with. Um, you bring a very interesting perspective to all of this, and I, I think we've all watched with interest um, this latest example of a publicly available DNA database that was used to crack a four-plus four, four decades-old series of homicide and rape cases. Um, as just one example, there's, you could pull lots of examples, but because this one is one that you know we're hearing a lot about right now, how does CDT think about sort of these issues as sort of the balancing the issues of surveillance, national security, law enforcement with rights. And that's exactly the right word, although I would never say that privacy and national security are in balance, meaning I think they are values that need to work together. Um, But I, too, I am captivated by this Golden Gate killer. It's just riveting how law enforcement went about their jobs and how they are using the DNA match not as the sole piece of evidence, because I think that would be a very troublesome thing just to look back 30 years and find a, a DNA match. And I think DNA has been used to both incarcerate and also exonerate people in a good and bad way um, in a number of cases. But in this case, it was an additional data point used to narrow down the field of search for a law enforcement investigation. Um, and, you know, if, if used appropriately and narrowly and, and with you know appropriate oversight from from judges and other uh, other interventions, you know, this is this is definitely our future. This is something we all need to be aware of. And I don't think there's anyone who could argue, I don't want to see that guy in jail, right? I just don't think that's that's a reasonable argument so I think what we need to be looking at is 
what were the expectations of the people who put their DNA on that site? It was a publicly available database. So I've got to think that the expectations were lower, for example, than it would have been if it had been Ancestry.com or 23andMe mm-hmm. or, or National Geographic. It goes or, back or, to that personal responsibility Right. And piece. so, and, and, and the company being very transparent about what the uses were going to be and how it was going to be used. I have not delved deep into what the terms of service were on that day, on that website. Um, but it does, it does bring up all of the issues of what data about you is yours? This is an interesting question, and it's true of both the kind of Facebook Cambridge Analytica issue as well as the DNA uh, Golden Gate Killer issue. The DNA that or the data you offer does not only speak to your identity, it also speaks in the DNA context, for example, to the identity of all of your family members, right? right? right. And so I think you do have a higher level of responsibility and the company has a higher level of responsibility in explaining to you the consequences of putting your data your dna material in a public setting like that um because you are making choices not just for yourself but on behalf of your friends or family as well and so these these are serious ethical issues and how we look at them is what is in the best interest of the individual and what is in the best interest of society right and sometimes those things have to be balanced sometimes those things have to be looked at in tension this is true in in healthcare data generally when you give your healthcare data to your provider to to solve a disease or an issue you're having that data also has relevance to help understand and perhaps combat wide-scale disease in this country or around the world. There may be public policy initiatives, and and law enforcement and national security certainly is one that we we work on very uh, closely, where the public policy interests of the data outweigh the rights of the individual and that's a I would think that's a very 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 high bar obviously I would you know I'd set the the bar very very high for that kind of a discussion but if the data could be de-identified or anonymized or broken the link between your real world identity and simply knowing that you are a white female of a certain age um, that data might have real utility to solving crimes to solving diseases to to making the world a better place and these are the questions I think senior executives like your husband and others at companies are thinking about how do we make the world a better place how do we use data for good and these are these are the hard questions these this is the space i think where cdt lives best is recognizing that there are strongly held views on the rights of the individual and on the rights of society and the rights of government and trying to create a a concerted reasonable solution for those questions Mm -hmm. so as a mom um you're the mom of three and you, like everyone else, your kids are growing up with technology. When, is, when do you start talking to your kids about technology and what are some of the best practices that you and CDT are trying to impart? This is, I think, the most important question, right? Yeah. So everything begins at home, right? Personal responsibility and boundaries. And I actually have great hope on this, on this question as well. I think kids are learning better boundaries than we had when we became adopters. We are what would be called the digital immigrants and they are the digital natives. Mm -hmm. I look at my nieces who are in college. They have a thing called a phone pile. When they go out to dinner with friends, they pile all the cell phones in the middle of the table. Really? And you you can't touch it until dinner is over. And so you have to look each other in the eye and actually have a conversation. I think this is terrific. I think I have great hope for each of us individually and as a society to create new norms. What I've seen in my life, and we've tried everything in our house from a digital Sabbath where Sunday is just phones off, no social media, no nothing. I think that's very healthy. My kids 
kids go to sleepaway camp where there are no devices. They are confiscated when they get off the bus at camp, and I think that's incredibly healthy. But also just setting boundaries. No devices at the dinner table. No electronics at the dinner table at all. No toys at the dinner table at all. Um, you know, phones are on the kitchen counter at 9 o'clock at night, and that's it. Nobody has them in their bedrooms. Nobody has access to them until they get up in the morning. I think it's the onus is on the parent to set good boundaries. But with that also to let the kids explore in safe spaces and so my kids were online and using the internet and both in in closer spaces and with a little bit more free roaming at a very early age and we always had computers where you could see the screen this is something i learned from my older sister who's not necessarily in in technology in a professional way but she said you got to be able to see the screen just so you can check in as you're walking by to put the dinner in the oven or you know put another load of laundry in um and i think it's really healthy to let them both explore and and make good choices and occasionally make mistakes there have been a couple of mistakes in my house we've had to deal with Mm -hmm. about looking at content that was inappropriate for your age or, or or not doing your homework when you're supposed to be doing your homework online um but you cannot just like the, the kids who weren't allowed to watch television when we were children and then they come to your house and they only want to watch television because right. they weren't allowed to do it at their house right. you actually want to help the kids learn how to make healthy choices and themselves. create that balance mm-hmm. yeah that's great how about the topic of cyberbullying too i mean kids can do things that i mean they yeah. know inherently when something is wrong but at the same time as a kid it may seem less consequential so how, how do you how do you talk to your own kids about things like cyberbullying and how do you help them deal with scenarios that inevitably happen? It's incredibly scary to have teenage girls in this environment, right? Um, and I do, we all look back longingly for the days when we were all in college and didn't have cell phones and there are no pictures, thank goodness for so many of us. Um, so I'm mindful we all make mistakes. Some of these are simply going to be more well-documented. What I, I've tried to, the, the first messages I gave my kids when they were very, very young and just basically at the earliest days they were verbal was no personal information online, first of all. You never give your name, your address, your telephone number, anything about yourself or your family that could be used to locate you in in the real world that's a good bright line rule for little kids is just you don't ever give your real name you give your nickname you give you know you make up a screen name whatever um, but the second is that everything is permanent everything about the internet goes on your permanent record there is no erasing it once it is sent and that words matter and that words hurt just like you know a physical hurt would hurt um, and that once you say it you cannot take it back And so first the exercise of personal responsibility on their own behalf, but also to call out bullying and to be an upstander, not a bystander. If they see something that they are concerned about, that they can come to me or they can come to their teacher. There's always an adult who is, just like if you saw an accident at school or you needed to go get a police officer or whatever, there's always an adult who can help you navigate that. And we saw an issue of of race and gender inappropriate language in one of my children's school a few years ago and I was really pleased with how the girls responded and really spoke up for their friend and were respectful in their language and responsible and responsive what I was surprised by is they were afraid to tell their teachers and the adults in their lives because they were both embarrassed that somebody in their community would have done this but also they just thought it was such unsavory language they were you know didn't want to reveal that they had seen it even um, so I think it, making sure that there's always a line of communication and that there, the repercussions would be if you didn't come forward and that you weren't honest about it, but that there will be support if you are honest and forthright, um, but that there are serious consequences if you're the perpetrator, if you're mm-hmm. the one who says the bad thing. Um, 
and 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 it is concerning. People do feel free, and when they're behind a screen, to say things in and 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 say things in ways that they wouldn't say to your face. And so, again, I think it's about setting boundaries. Um, I was also going to joke, and it is somewhat true. Privacy for everyone except for my children. I feel free to the, the practical rules. I would, I would to the extent they're helpful to your listeners. Um, I have the passwords for everybody's devices. I have the passwords for everybody's social media accounts. If I ever try to spot check them and go on, and they don't work, they're going to lose their devices for a month. I mean, we are pretty hardcore, but I'm pretty clear about what the rules are. Um, but I do not follow my kids on Instagram or kind of cyber stalk them. I, but they know that that I have the ability to spot check them. And frankly, they're kind cousins and my sister their their aunt uh will report spies, back to spies, me spies so you know you. a healthy community right it takes a village so um but I do think letting them explore but knowing that there are consequences for for bad, bad behavior as well yeah yeah okay let's pivot a bit and talk about women in STEM a big topic this has been a topic for some time what is CDT uh how, how are you all involved in, in increasing the number of women who are in STEM related uh, fields. I think this is a concerning issue, particularly because the trend line is down. Mm-hmm. I was an undergrad at Princeton in the 1980s, and the, the numbers were trending upwards towards almost 50-50 women and men in not only liberal arts, but the engineering school. Now the numbers are decreasing again. And interestingly, the numbers of women taking leadership roles, for example, even in the student government, I was just at a talk by the, the Princeton president of, uh, not too long ago, and she said, women are not stepping forward. Women are not stepping forward to lead, and they're often taking a number two role. I know Cheryl Sandberg's book wrote about kind of the women's work and taking the kind of supporting role. Um, So we are certainly looking at promoting and ensuring that women's voices are heard in all of the dialogues that we are engaged in and looking at the programming, the actual coding of technology to make sure, again, that there's not inherent bias and Mm -hmm. that it resonates with women and that technology is something that is attractive to women. Um, I'm worried about our society saying, you know, science is for boys and math is for boys and and science and math are geeky things. Like we, we, I'm very mindful of my language at home and also as well that this is not just an institutional but a personal thing, that these are disciplines that are attractive and interesting to people of all kinds and that they do not skew kind of just like colors are not boy colors or girl colors mm-hmm. jobs and careers are not boys and girls um, and so while we don't have an, a formal program we are, are mindful of our interactions and, and working with both companies to in, encourage them to hire more women and and create workplaces that are diverse and inclusive and that in the policy world for example I'm very mindful of do we have women speaking on panels? Do we have women's voices at the table? Are we inclusive of all kinds, of all people? So you yourself are an incredible role model. Um, you have had a very interesting career. Give us some advice and your thoughts about this notion. You're an executive. You're a mom. You are, there's this dreaded word, but balancing, essentially. <laughs> Is it a balance or is it a circus act? I don't know. Um, how, how, how do you do that? How do you do that? You have three kids that range in age from teenagers to sort of elementary school. Elementary mm-hmm. school. Um, you've got a lot of moving parts in your life. What's your, what's your advice for, for other people who are struggling with this? Well, first of all, I think to be kind to yourself, right? I think we are all super hard on ourselves, and when we drop the ball and forget, you know, somebody's art project or you know, uh, you know, a science fair at school is happening tomorrow, and we don't have the, you know, whatever paper mache tornado that we are supposed to create. You usually learn um, about that around yeah, 10 o'clock yes, at night, you right? got it. Just uh-huh. bedtime, mom. I didn't finish my. Um, 
I think the ability to laugh at yourself is a very, very healthy thing. Um, I, I, people say, really, how do you do it? And well, that question is kind of sometimes infuriatingly you know, uh, hard to answer. I will say I'm hyper-organized. And I, 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 I combine my work schedules and my home schedules in a way that I, I've actually been intentionally transparent to the folks here at work. When I was coming up as a lawyer again in like the 80s and 90s, right out of high school, uh, of college and law school, I saw a lot of women hiding the fact that they were going home for a, a doctor's appointment or, you know, putting something euphemistic on their calendar when they needed to go to a Little League game, that sort of thing. I have said, you know, I think people will work hard if they're motivated standing on their head in their pajamas in the middle of the night if they need to get a brief done and if they're not motivated they could be sitting in the office not doing anything you know twiddling their thumbs or doing something on the internet um so i i try to create here at cdt a very open workspace where people know if they need to take a couple of hours off to be at a child's doctor's appointment they can make that time up you know later in the evening or on the weekends my normal day is pretty compressed in the office but I'm back online again after the kids go to bed and I'm online first thing in the morning before I go for my run I am known for sending the five o'clock email so I can get a project started in Europe before I you know I head out for the day Um, but I want to really and I think we've talked about this once before Laura that I think the notion that there's a mommy track or that you can't do these jobs I think I am better now that I have children at what I do at everything that I do in the office because I I can tell the noise from the signal I can tell the whining from the real pain I can um, see through people's kind of issues and also have sympathy and empathy for what they might be having going on in their lives Um, and I think I'm a better decision maker much better than before I had kids because I think I can synthesize and integrate a lot of facts more quickly now that I have to manage many, many people at home and many, many people at work than I I did um, before having children. So I think it has helped my leadership as opposed to hurt it. Mm -hmm. Now, do I have fewer hours in the day? Sure, because I want to get home and have dinner with the kids. And I am ruthlessly uh, scheduled about being home for dinner unless I have one, you know, event at at night for work, and then I'll schedule everything I can for that one night. Um, But I am really mindful of being physically present at home, um, especially around dinner and and bedtime and reading stories. Uh, And that that is a challenge. And that means I say no to a lot of stuff. And that is the hardest thing. What we had executive GE who very one of our most senior women who said, it's not a balance. It's a which balls are you going to drop on any given day? And I thought that's a very dark way, you know, negative way to look at it. I wouldn't put it in those words, but you have to be increasingly willing to say no and say no to hard things. And and I lean towards being home for the kids, but I will say I missed my first child's first day of preschool because I was briefing the CEO of GE and it was a pivotal issue on a major data breach actually and I agonized and I got every input I could from every woman I knew and and I showed up for the you know the orientation program and I did drop off every day for the rest of that year but I missed that one day and clearly I remember this now she's 13 years old so I still remember this (laughs) um and I had women at GE say oh no you can't miss that you can't miss that in hindsight I made the right choice I have shown up for her every other activity at school um but that one meeting changed the course of all of the work I did at the company and it was a level of visibility that not everybody gets and and it, I agonized and and the judgment I found I got from women both at home and at work was really 
really interesting. I'm sure people listening to this will say, oh, she's a terrible person. She missed her first day at school. Um, I think you have to look at, you know, a week, a month, a year, you know, a decade and say, where am I showing up? And all those little choices do matter. Every single one of them does matter. Where is the general trend line of where you're, you're spending your time and are you allocating it? I just spend a lot less time shooting the breeze in my office, right? That, so the, the, the downtime is what is lost. The downtime with my girlfriends, that's my, as I go into my 50th birthday year, that is my, that is my goal is to really honor and cherish those girlfriends who have been with me since the beginning and I have I, I would say my confession my weakness is I haven't been a good enough girlfriend to them and so I'm really mindful of honoring and celebrating those great women's friendships that that I've been so lucky to make let's talk a bit about meaning at work mm-hmm. um, how when you are working on something that you're really passionate about and the role that that plays as it relates to this decision-making process and why you do what you do. Why do you do what you do? What a great question. I feel like I wake up on the right side of history every single day. What a a gift of a question. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, It feels as close to being in the government as any job I've ever had. And the pivot point for me... So it's mission-driven. It is so mission-driven. And I see that very much among the ranks. I certainly hear, but I see that generationally people are really making choices to make meaningful lives. And I think that that's that's a wonderful trend, I think, for our society, that people do want to serve, and they want service, and they want flexibility and integrated lives with families or other interests in a way that I don't think the only paradigm is the 80-hour work week anymore. I've done, I've been there and done that, and it has its merits in terms of salary. But, but I think there's there are great choices being made by men and women in the workforce to create healthy work environments. For us, we feel like we are helping create a fairer digital world, a more equitable and inclusive digital world for everyone, and bring these great tools and platforms to people all around the world, not only in the United States, but hopefully in furtherance of fundamental democratic values. That makes it very easy. To, I'm, I am excited to get up in the morning. I'm not sure everybody who works here even understands, having worked in as many different places as I did, that this is a joy. It's a really, it's a joy to serve and it's a privilege to serve. And like I said, I feel as close to being back in the government where I felt every day, again, after 9-11, we were serving the needs of the country and trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely. So Nula, how about your best piece of advice or favorite life hack, either the advice that you live by, the life hack that you share with your team, with your kids, one thing that you want to leave our listeners with that's kind of your North Star? Oh, these are terrific questions. I think in terms of career advice, I would get all the career advice you want, but then listen to your gut. For me, the best choices have been made that weren't necessarily obvious to other people, but that furthered my learning. I've always said, as long as I'm learning, I'll stay. And when I'm no longer learning, I'll go. I think that's kept me young and energetic and interested in what I've been doing. Um, I've gotten some terrible career advice from people. I mean, I, I'd love to, I think we should do a segment on the bad career <laughs> bad advice, advice people have given in <laughs> there. The you know, <laughs> I think that is just like, you know, don't take that job. You're too young. You're not this. You're not like, I love it when people tell that that's like waving a red flag in front of me to say, you're not qualified. I'm like, oh, just watch me, which is a very interesting because I don't think, I think women often and undersell their their abilities. So I would say, you know, listen to all the great career advice, but also question the motivation of the person. I mean, most it's from bosses who wanted me to stay and not take a future job because it was good for me to continue working for them. Um, I Life hacks. I think we all need to have more fun. I think you need to schedule your fun 
whatever you, your fund, I think maybe I'm speaking to myself now more than anybody else, but I think women in general, we give to others, we give to our families, we give to our communities, we give to our, our offices. I said grumpily to someone just the other day, it was dark and rainy and cold here in Washington and thank goodness it's sunny and beautiful today. But I said, I'm not having any fun. And I realized what I meant was I have not done anything for myself, not even gotten my nails done in you know months. And I think we all need to be, again, that's my goal about scheduling time with my girlfriends, is schedule a little silliness. The challenge for women is to integrate their kind of authentic self and femininity or self presentation in whatever form it is. Um, you know, we don't have a, a, a great paradigm for the well-rounded women leader in this country yet. We have women who've devoted themselves to public service or to their career or whatever. Um, I'm excited to see kind of the moms, the, 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 the women who've taken time off from their careers, the women who have on-ramped and off-ramped. I think we need to get and uh, to be more supportive of each other in the choices that we make. I think we can be our hardest critics ourselves and and to each other. I'd like to see women really saying, you know, that's the right choice for you right now, and I applaud that, and that's terrific. And and you know what? Next year you might be the stay-at-home mom, and next year, year ten years from now you might be working full time. Life is long. We will all be different things at different points of our career. So I think as long as you keep learning, you'll be prepared for whatever comes next. It's great advice. It's really great advice. This is super, super helpful and interesting and insightful. It's great to be with you, Nula. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. To learn more about Nula, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. And you can also follow Nula on her Twitter handle at PrivacyMama, as well as on her website at CDT. You can also follow this podcast via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying these interviews, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, 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 oh,